Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 27 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled The Miracle at Lystra, where we'll discuss Acts 14, verses 8 through 20. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? So in this account, Paul and Barnabas are in uh, the city of Lystra, and they do an incredible miracle there, and the people react wrongly. They want to worship them, saying, the gods have come down to us in human form. And Paul and Barnabas did all they could to t- talk them out of that paganism and that kind of faulty theology. And the people were wanting to worship them. But then they got won over by some angry Jewish unbelievers. And then they wanted to stone them. And so we see the fickleness of the human heart and also the amazing courage, especially of Paul, as they stoned him and basically left him for dead. And he got up in the next city, continued his ministry. So we see really the best and the worst of human beings here, the best in Paul and the worst in these um, these pagans who want to kill him or tried to kill him. So we're going to walk through all that today. Well, let me go ahead and read verses 8 through 20 in chapter 14. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, He went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Andy, what role does the miraculous healing of the crippled man have in the preaching of the gospel at Lystra? And what was the man doing before Paul healed him? All right, so this individual is crippled uh, from birth. Uh, The the text says that he'd never walked, so it's a a very sad, uh, wretched experience for him. And so I don't know what his life had been like, but it was uh, was greatly difficult because of his uh, crippled status. Um, And uh, the text says that he was listening to Paul as he was speaking, and uh, Paul healed him. Um, It says in the text that he saw, he had the discernment, Paul did, to see that the man had faith to be healed. So I think it's a work of the Holy Spirit 
on both sides of the equation. Mm. Uh, in the man giving him the gift of faith, and then in Paul seeing that he had that gift of faith. So the Holy Spirit worked that in Paul so that you could identify it and recognize it. And calls to him, stand up on your feet, and the man jumps up and begins to walk. Now, your question was, what, did the, what effect did that miracle have? Well, uh, as we, we see again and again, miracles uh, draw a crowd, um, give a sense of validity and power to the message. At their best, they open people uh, up to hear the true gospel message so that they can be saved. But here we're going to see the reaction goes in a different direction than Paul or mm. Barnabas wanted. How did the actual healing occur? And mm. how did the crowd react to this healing? Well, the actual healing just occurred with Paul noting, as I just said a moment ago, that he had the faith to be healed. And so there is that link between faith and healing. It isn't always the case in the in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with some of the healings. Um, the individuals either had faith or they didn't. Sometimes Jesus makes much of the individual's faith and links it to the faith. Other times he just heals people uh, apart from their faith. In this case, though, there's a strong link between the man's faith and his healing. And all that happened is Paul just called on him to stand up on his feet. Hmm. And the man believed the message and stood up. He probably could also feel in his body something different than he had ever felt before. So the mechanism was quite simple. I find it interesting, the New Testament, the Gospels and the book of Acts, how different the miracles are from one another. Hmm. They have common themes, but how it actually happens is different from time to time. And so it's, uh, it's very... Uh, it's varied and diverse how the miracles happen. But fundamentally, in this case, the man believed the message that he could stand up on his, on his feet. Now, the crowds react by saying, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Uh, which gods did the crowds identify with the missionaries? Uh, well, they, they called Barnabas Zeus, the, uh, the king of the gods, the pantheon. And um, they called Paul Hermes because he was the speaker. So Hermes was a messenger who would be sent out uh, with messages. Um, now, I think this is very significant for another part of Scripture, which we're not going to get into here, but I do want to mention it. And it has to do with the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Hmm. I really do believe that Pilate believed that Jesus was an incarnation. I don't think he believed he was the incarnate creator of the universe. I don't think Pilate was a monotheist. But in their polytheistic world and in the myths that they grew up hearing, the gods and goddesses frequently took on human bodies. And they'd go down and get in all kinds of mischief because the Greek gods and goddesses, which the Romans just adopted, were like a bunch of Hollywood stars and starlets that had all kinds of corruptions and wickednesses and lusts and would get themselves into trouble. And mm. then and then the 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 wife of the of the god would be angry that that the god had snuck off and had hung out with, if you understand my meaning, some woman. Uh, and then she would get jealous and punish the woman. And these stories went on and on. Um, a woman being turned into a cow uh, because uh, she had had a tryst with uh, Zeus, for example. Anyway, these kinds of stories um, were commonplace in the Greek and Roman uh, mythology. And so they just applied that here to Paul and Barnabas. And I do believe that Pilate believed that Jesus was supernatural. He'd certainly mm. heard of his miracles. His wife had told him, have nothing to do with that righteous man because I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. 
Um, the Jews were saying we have a law and according to our law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. And the text says in John's gospel, when Pilate heard this, he was even more alarmed and said to Jesus, where do you come from? Hmm. And, and I really believe he was a God in human form. And so that's what made the trial of Jesus before Pilate so intensely difficult for trial. The real, uh, for, for Pilate, the real one on trial was Pilate. Jesus knew he was going to die. Hmm. And he was sublimely, supernaturally at peace through that whole thing. Pilate was like a, a, a ping pong ball going back and forth from the Jews to Jesus and back again and not knowing what to do. And I think at the core of it was he believed that Jesus was a God who had come down in human form. Anyway, back here to Acts 14, th this crowd believed that's what's going on. And the evidence for it was the supernatural work, the miracle. So after the people have sorted out or identified which God each of them was, or so they thought, mm -hmm. what happened next? And what does this illustrate in verse 13? Well, the priest of Zeus, uh, so there, there are different temples that would be set up in honor of different gods and goddesses, like uh, Artemis of the Ephesians was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple dedicated to her. Um, so it seems like there was a temple to Zeus um, outside this city, and he got wind of the fact that it seems Zeus has come down in human form, Barnabas, and so they want to come out and bring uh, bring sacrifice. They want to bring bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So here they are, ready to uh, ready to worship. I also find it interesting. Um, this is what some missionary scholars have called a, a redemptive analogy. Um, and that's where God providentially leaves within the wicked pagan religions um, certain details that make it able for messengers of the true gospel to preach. And one of the most common is animal sacrifice. All over the world, animistic religions uh, involve animal sacrifice, and that mm. includes the, this pagan uh, religion. But here they want to offer sacrifices uh, to uh, Paul and Barnabas. Ultimately, the true sacrifice, the blood offering to an enraged God to appease him, to turn him away from wrath, is at the core of our gospel. That's what propitiation is, mm. the turning aside of the wrath of God by the offering of a sacrifice. But God has left these evidences in these pagan religions so that people can come and preach. At any rate, it's very badly misplaced here because they really believe that Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Hermes and they want to offer this bull and these wreaths to them. Hmm. When Paul and Barnabas understood what the people were doing, how did they react? And what does this show us about their heart? Yeah, they tore their clothes. They're in anguish over this. Um, again, I, I think it's just so important to see how the entire Bible beautifully and perfectly fits together. Um, there are a number of times in which created beings who are righteous and good utterly refuse to be worshipped. Hmm. And the angel that gave John the book of Revelation twice had to stop John from worshiping him. That's how glorious angels are. And John, even in his old age there, uh, as a righteous man, should have known better, but was just melted in the presence of this incredible messenger angel. And he goes to worship him and the angel stops him and says, do not do that. I am just a servant like you. Uh, and here, Paul and Barnabas, they tear their clothes. This is a Jewish sign of great grief and mourning. Uh, they utterly reject the concept of being uh, worshipped because they're just created beings and worship God alone. Only God should be worshipped. Um, 
uh, on the contrary, the wicked king Herod accepts worship as God in Acts 12, as we saw a few um, weeks ago. And so, uh, and God struck him down for that. He, they said, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And he accepts the worship and God strikes him dead. Mm. Now, against, over, over against all of that is Jesus, who consistently accepted worship, consistently. And the pinnacle being John 20, where um, Thomas, doubting Thomas, clearly convinced of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, says to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. And so believing that Jesus is God and then having that flow over into worship is of the essence of our religion. We believe as Christians that Jesus is God and should be worshiped. So at any rate, in this particular case, they know this is completely wicked and pagan and wrong, and they tear their clothes in grief and refuse to accept worship. How do Paul and Barnabas attempt to turn the people from their idolatry, and what do they teach about God in verse 15? So they rush into the crowd and they shout, (laughs) men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human, like you. We are bringing you good news. We're bringing you the gospel, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. He has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And so he brings out words. He tries to persuade them by preaching Hmm. uh, to expose the futility of their paganism and their religion. If their religion were fine, uh, they would never have come there with the gospel. But it's because they were perishing, because they were dying in their paganism that Paul and Barnabas brought the good news of faith in Jesus Christ. So he tries to to warn them, to rebuke them, to correct them, and to point them toward the true religion, which is faith in God and faith in Christ. Um, So uh, it is by words and by anguish persuasion that they try to stop them. What does Paul mean when he says, in past generations, God allowed the nations to walk in their own ways? Well, it doesn't mean that they weren't guilty for what they were doing. Romans 1 makes it plain that um, worshiping and serving the creature, the created thing, rather than the creator is damnable. And they had in their consciences the testimony from God that it was false religion. And so it doesn't mean that they um, are are free from condemnation. Um, Paul says in Romans 1, they're without excuse. They knew and they went the wrong way. Hmm. So he's talking about about pagans all over the world. So in the past, God let all nations go their own way means basically what Romans 1 says. He gave them over to it. He, He didn't interfere. He didn't try to stop them, but now. He sent Paul and Barnabas to interfere, Hmm. to try to stop them, to persuade them to stop doing these things. That's God not letting nations go their own way. So I think he just let them go, meaning he didn't send prophets. He didn't send messengers. He didn't do anything. He just let them develop their culture and their false religion as they saw fit and then judged them for it. So it seems there's both a a broad application of this in that the gospel is breaking in and God is – seeking to reconcile people to himself through the proclamation of the gospel, but also Mm -hmm. specifically here that Paul and Barnabas are saying to you specifically that Mm -hmm. you wouldn't engage in this pagan, Mm -hmm. idolatrous worship, but that you would turn to the living God. Yeah. He also points to what we call natural theology. All right. First of all, he calls their religion worthless. 
So, you know, this is something we need to understand. We're not, we're not there to affirm faulty views. We have a lot of faulty views in our culture um, these days. We think about LGBTQ activists and we're, we're supposed to affirm and celebrate. Christians are not called on to affirm lies told by the devil. We are not here to affirm false religions all over the world. Uh, we're not going to say that they're equally valid. Uh, we do believe that there should be freedom of religion in our country, and we think it would be best for all nations all over the world to have freedom of religion, to let people worship whatever they want to worship without being arrested by the human government. Uh, we as Americans believe there should be a separation of church and state in that regard, and that government should make no, no law respecting the establishment of any religion or, or preventing the free exercise thereof. That's what we believe as Americans. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm saying is, if you're going to ask me, are all religions an equally valid way of worshiping God? I would say absolutely not. There is one and only one right way to God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul calls it a worthless religion. They, they are worthless. Mm -hmm. uh, the paganism is worthless. And so also are all religions other than Christianity, uh, ultimately worthless. Even Christless Judaism has become worthless mm. because they turned away in rebellion against Christ. Um, and you cannot do that and still be saved. So all of those faulty religions are worthless. But uh, at any rate, they are there to turn, to get the people to turn from their worthless religion to the living God. And then he uses creation. That's what I mean by natural theology. God made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. And not only that, but he has shown kindness by giving you rain and crops and good things and uh, provides you with plenty of things and fills your hearts with joy. Every good and perfect gift comes down from God, mm. James 1.17. So he's using the goodness of God and the kindness of God and the wisdom of God. So this is natural theology, again, a la Romans chapter 1. Um, by created things, we can see that there is a powerful creator who is wise and loving and good putting it all together. So that's what he does to try to dissuade them from their faulty paganism. Yeah, Andy, it strikes me another phrase for this general kindness of God to his creation might be common grace. It might be something yeah. that our listeners have, mm -hmm. have heard. So this natural theology and common grace, uh, how is this a witness to God? You mentioned some of what it reveals to us about God's character and how I, how, and how might we use verse 17 to witness to an unbeliever who's bitter against God for perhaps something that has not gone, gone well, some tragedy that they've experienced in their lives? Such good questions, Wes. I, I would start by saying in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives evidence of natural theology of how God loves his enemies. And so therefore, we Christians should love our enemies. Um, love those. You've heard that it was said, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. God loves his enemies. And we are his enemies. Apart from the redeeming work of of uh, Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, we are hostile to God. We're enemies. And so all over the world, all the nations were at enmity with God and hated him, and he is showing them kindness day after day. Mm -hmm. Everything that ever brought them joy, everything that brought them pleasure, the, the birth of a, of a son or a daughter, and, and then the, the joy of watching that little one grow up and, and run across the yard and, and say, Daddy or Mommy, and hug and, and, and kiss, and, and um, just the, the beauty of, of nature. 
and uh, the, the delights of animals, of riding a horse or, or of seeing a crop come up and come up very well, a bumper crop, and, and, and have your barns filled and you'll have plenty of food for the next year. And all of those good moments that pagans experienced all over the world, Paul says here is evidence of God's kindness. Mm. That's the way God is. He's kind to us. He's a good God and he loves us. Uh, but we throw it in his face and we worship and serve cre created things rather than the creator. That's the point. And so at some point, judgment comes. So fundamentally, I think what we learn from um, this is that we should be loving to our enemies as God is loving to his. And uh, even, even uh, if they persecute us at the end of this account, they're going to stone Paul and leave him for dead. Um, still, like Stephen, um, wishing well on those that are persecuting you. I, I want what's best for you. I want you to have a love relationship with God. I want your sins to be forgiven. Even though you hate me, even though you're pounding on my body, even though you're depriving me of my freedoms, even though you, you are mean and rude and unkind to me, I'm not gonna do any of those things to you. Mm. And so going back to the LGBT stuff or the other things, people were trying to win. We do so with kindness. We do, this, do it not by, by lying and saying it's an equally valid way to live your life. We're not saying that at all, but what we are saying is we're going to be kind. We're gonna be loving. If your body is in need, if you're hurting, if you're injured, we're gonna to try to help you. If you're drowning, we're gonna to try to physically save you. We're going to do what we can because that's the way God is. Hmm. Now, verse 18 seems to say essentially, even with all of this effort, it's just barely that the people are convinced not to go on and carry out what they were intending in worshiping these two men, these messengers of God. What does verse 18 teach us about human nature in light of that? Yeah, I think what we learn from verse 18 is just how stubborn and hard-hearted people can be. And, um, you know, really it's, it's the grace of God that words spoken are effective to convert us. Hmm. I mean, only God can do that. Um, usually words aren't enough. And so in this case, words weren't enough. It was all they could do to stop them from uh, from worshiping. And, and I don't think they had changed their minds at all. It's proven by what happens next. So the fact is uh, their words were not effective. If you are a Christian today, it's because the words of the gospel were effective with you. And you can thank God for that. Thank God that he gave you the heart to hear the words and believe them. Uh, so they were not effective. People are hard-hearted and stubborn, and they're going to do what they're going to do. Was all they could do to stop them. So these, the proclamation of the truth of a good creator God who has shown kindness by giving them crops and filling their hearts with joy, for which they should have been thankful to him, but they weren't. Instead, they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. They made up their own religions. They made up idols, which they worship. Despite all of that, um, the, the clear proclamation of the truth, they still wanted to keep on going in a hard-hearted way with their own faulty, worthless religion. Now, what's interesting is verse 19 also shows us something about human nature. But uh, if 18 shows us that humans are stubborn, what does mm -hmm. verse 19 teach us based on the shocking development that we yeah. see take place there? Well, it says that Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. Now, Paul's going to talk about these Jews in First uh, Thessalonians. Um, and how they, uh, the unbelieving Jews, now Paul was a Jew, but he was a believing Jew, believing in Christ is what I mean. But unbelieving Jews are some of his bitterest enemies. And they were highly motivated. And Jesus predicted this. He said to his own, his own apostles, 
He said, uh, the time will come when people, Jews, who uh, put you out of the synagogue and persecute you and, and try to kill you think they're serving God. So here are these zealous Jews who are not even staying in their own place. Hmm. They're coming all the way from Antioch and Iconium. They are doing everything they can to shut down uh, Christianity. And Paul said the same thing. He said, I thought I was in, in the way of my duty to do everything I could to shut down Christianity, the way is what they called it at that point. And so these Jews do the same thing. So they come out of bitter opposition to Jesus as the Christ, fighting against him. They're zealous for, uh, for this faulty view of Judaism, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. And then they come and they win these pagans over. Their words are effective. And whereas a few a short time before that, I don't know how long it was, there's no time frame here, but just a short time before this, they want to worship Paul and Barnabas. Now they want to kill him. That shows me the attribute of fickleness. Mm. You know, human beings are fickle, like we see in the triumphal entry where they're shouting, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then sometime later, the crowd is shouting, crucify, crucify. Wouldn't surprise me if there are some, if not many, that were in both crowds. Mm. And so people change their minds and they're fickle. That's what we see here. Andy, how does this verse give us insight into the amazing nature of Paul's love that he expresses in Romans 9, 1 through 3? Yeah, he says there in Romans 9, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people. Uh, these are the Jews. Now, he puts all those extra words. I'm telling you the truth. Really, really. I know it's hard to believe, but it really is true. I would trade my salvation for their, for theirs that, to win them if I could. Hmm. Um, the reason he has to say all this, like, these are some of your bitterest enemies. They hate you, Paul. They want you dead. I know. Hmm. I know. But I want them saved. I don't want them dead. Hmm. So it just shows the tremendous Christ-like love that Paul has for the Jewish people because Jesus was the same way. He knew that most of them would reject him. And so uh, we see that in, in Paul and we see some, we're about to see some other attributes in Paul too that are quite amazing. How do we explain Paul's amazing survival of being stoned? I mean, it says right here in the text that when they stoned him, they dragged him out of the city supposing he was dead. How do we account for his survival? He may well have been dead. You know, I, I don't think it's impossible because Paul himself raised, uh, you know, that boy that fell Eutychus from the from the window. He was picked up dead, and, and Paul raised him from the dead. And mm -hmm. then Peter uh, raised Dorcas from the dead. Um, and so people can die and come alive again. Um, it doesn't say whether he was dead or not. It just says that the people thought he was dead. And one thing's for sure, stoning usually kills people. So they were definitely intending to kill him. Mm. And so he, um, uh, he was stoned um, and was severely injured. And you think about what this must have done to his, his uh, body. It, uh, it says they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. Mm. So, you know, they left him unconscious, clearly. Um, if he'd still been moving around, they would have stoned him some more. So he was unconscious, clearly bleeding, um, broken. And um, Paul mentions this as one of the afflictions that he went through for Christ in 2 Corinthians 11 in his list. That's why I say that Paul is the, the most persecuted man in the history of the Christian church. There's nobody that went through more for him, more for the gospel than he did. Uh, what does it show about Paul? It's amazing to me that he doesn't take any time off to convalesce. Um, so in being, if he was in fact raised from the dead, 
it's eminently possible for God to raise him up completely healed. I mean, like it never happened. Mm. I mean, that's what happened when Jesus healed lepers. It's like the leprosy never happened. So we really don't know, but this is quite remarkable. And that he doesn't need a mental break, a, a mental health day. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't need that. He's just right back at it the next day. Yeah. So I find this quite quite amazing. Um, it may be that this is when he was caught up to the third heaven, to paradise. Uh, I don't know. We can't put it all together. But uh, this is a very serious, uh, severe trial. It's a powerful picture of Paul's determination in preaching the gospel, how he's uh, thought to be dead, but the very next day goes about yeah. preaching and proclaiming the same message that got him into this situation in the first place. Yeah. Uh, you know, we shrink back at the slightest uh, opposition or discomfort in conversation sometimes, and Paul here faces his own death and by the grace of God continues to preach the next day. Yeah. How does Paul's perseverance in the midst of suffering and his determination to preach the good news encourage and challenge you and your Christian witness? And mm -hmm. what final thoughts do you have for us today based on what we've looked at in this text? Well, Paul actually did practice what he preached. One of the things he said, um, such as, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, mm. the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. He really lived that out. He was willing to go and, and die city after city. Also, Philippians 3, uh, Paul talks about the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. These sufferings actually brought him closer to Christ and to God. Uh, they were instrumental in his his uh, perfecting. He wasn't perfect, he said in Philippians 3, not, not yet, but he st was striving after it. And the, the conformity to Christ, to become like him in his death, he said, I think that is the hardest thing in the Christian life, to learn how to die and learn how to die again and again and again, to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, to be willing to die to yourself. And he died to himself in ways that are almost literally like dying. I mean, maybe even in this case, literally was dying, mm. physically dying. Uh, and then the willingness to just do it again and to present himself again and again. As he says, uh, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Uh, one translation says we face death all day long. It's one thing to face death. It's another thing to be killed. And he said, for your sake, we are being killed. Um, it's not theoretical. Christians are dying. Mm. And Paul himself may have been one of them, though God raised him up. I think the fact that they uh, left the next day and went on to Derby would imply to me that he had been miraculously healed. Because how are you going to get stoned and left for dead and you're able to walk a long distance the next day? Mm -hmm. So it's really quite remarkable. Um, and so what inspiration do I take from this? It's just, wow, if I could even come close to living up to the statement he makes in Acts 20, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Or again, Philippians 3, uh, to become conformed to the death of Christ and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. It inspires me. This has been episode 27 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 28 entitled Paul and Barnabas Strengthen the Church, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 28. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians 
make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.